Hello, I'm Caroline Baum. Welcome to Life Sentences. What did it take to embrace communism as a woman and as a writer in Australia in the early part of the 20th century? That's the question at the heart of an absorbing new biography of Catherine Susanna Pritchard, a prolific writer who spent most of her life in the Perth Hills and never lost her enthusiasm for Soviet-style Stalinist ideology, even when its purges and terrors were exposed. Pritchard paid a heavy price for her politics, both personally and creatively. Tragedy and drama punctuate her story, alongside romance, travel, independence, success and failure. Even if she's a problematic figure in some ways, no one can dispute her status as a pioneering figure in Australian literature. Many regard her novel, Coona Doo, written in 1929, as her greatest work and well ahead of its time in telling the story of an impossible relationship between a white man and an indigenous woman on an outback station. Her evocation of the landscapes of the far northwest have earned her classic status, together with her portrayal of the hard working life of timber and goldfield workers, observed firsthand. Nathan Hobby brings Pritchard to life in this sensitive, comprehensive, and even handed biography. Nathan, welcome to Life Sentences. Thank you. So pleased to be on the show. <laughs> now, you came at biography through fiction, and I find that really intriguing. You actually wrote a novel about two biographers, which allowed you to explore combining your appeal of the love of narrative and the allure of archives. Can you tell us a little bit about that? I set out to write a novel about a library, and it it began to change and developed into a novel about a library and about two biographers on a, on a quest to write about the the quaint founder of this library. And the more I looked into it, the more intriguing the art of biography seemed. I, I wanted to do what those biographers were doing in my own life, probably even more than I wanted to write about them. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned their quest biographies as a particular form, and they are amongst my most favourite. But ironically, in telling the story of Catherine Susanna Pritchard's life, which is so rich and complex and long, there has been no room for your personal quest in this telling. Was it difficult to make the decision to abandon the quest form or or did it come about organically? I didn't, it it didn't worry me too much. Like it, it, it just seemed the right choice for this book. I realised early on how much of her story there was to tell. And it. I was also very cautious being a man writing about a woman that to foreground my story would, would seem disrespectful in a sense when hers is such a rich story that, that needs telling and there, in a sense, felt like there wasn't much room for me. <laughs> I retreated into the background and I appear a little bit in the in the preface and in the afterword and otherwise exit the stage for the rest. <laughs> and do you think, Nathan, that your interest in KSP, I'm going to shorten her name, as many people did, comes about through her literature or through sympathy with her politics? Some of both, but also for me, it would be the intrigue and drama of her life like I I saw the contours of her life and thought that is such a story there is so much to her life and I wanted to explore it in detail and and uh, all the nuances and all the mysteries and and all the other aspects. (laughs) 
Now, understandably, you had the anxiety that all biographers have. You were worried that someone else would get there first. How much could you check and investigate and inquire as to anybody else was working on the same idea? Was it just a mere matter of checking with her main archive that no one else was going through it? I asked around with a couple of scholars who had been working on her and they didn't know of anyone working on it. And I did a lot of Googling. I mean, there were some other other subjects I was considering early on where I worked out there was someone um, already in progress on a biography and I, I decided I wouldn't try and compete on that. Funnily enough, midway, I was three years in, I think, four years in, when I went to the Mundaring Hills and Historical, Mundaring and Hills Historical Society out on the outskirts of Perth, just to check the rates book to see about the, the house Catherine lived in. And they said, we've got these boxes that are labelled Catherine, Susanna Pritchard. And they showed me them and I, I thought, oh, yes, someone did tell me about these. They, uh, they said someone was researching her and had printed out some pages from her ASIO file before it was digitised. And I thought it might have been a narrow scholarly project on her ASIO file, which was now digitised, so not much use to me. But as I started to go through the boxes, a story began to emerge. And it was a previous biographer's years of research into Catherine that had produced these five boxes of material. She'd worked on it for a PhD that was never completed. And due to a computer failure, there was no draft of her actual work. So I I didn't read anything of what she wrote about Catherine, but her research was excellent. And she'd interviewed a lot of people who had known Catherine. So she'd started about 15 years before me at about, I think it was the year 2000. And at that stage, some of her, Catherine's friends were still alive. And there were about six or seven interviews she'd conducted. Her notes just showed a really insightful mind into, into Catherine's life. And uh, but then there were also hints in the in the in the archive of the sort of troubles she'd run into and, and just the scale of the project and um, then this computer failure and and the project uh, hadn't been completed. So I don't know if it was good to find it halfway through or if I wish I'd found it early on or what. I, I had an interesting email correspondence with the biographer who remembered vividly her, her time with Catherine as well. <laughs> Every biographer hopes to find that kind of material. But the other, and and I'm going to get you to obviously tell us who Catherine Susanna Pritchard is in a moment. But before we go to that, the other material that you had to draw on was that her son, Rick Throssell, had also written a biography of his mother. Now, very difficult to imagine any son being objective about a parent. But how useful was that biography or how unreliable was it? Yes, I'm so grateful that Rick Frostle wrote that book. He he decided he needed to do it after Catherine's death. He responded really strongly to an obituary by Dorothy Hewitt, which was absolutely scathing of Catherine in a sense. And he thought the truth had to be told as he saw it. And so he set out to write it. He, he wrote it quite quickly. I, I'm amazed at how quickly he got it done. And he sat down in 1972, had it, had six months off, I think, or something like that from his job. And he just sat down and wrote it, bringing in a lot of her letters that at that stage he wasn't going to release to the public beyond what he put in the book. I think he does a really, he he really tries to be fair and he really tries to look at things objectively. But 
then on the other hand, he is also consciously trying to defend his mother against her critics. And he is the, the whole, not, the whole biography does read a bit defensively and it was sort of based on the papers he had more than anything, rather than a lot of work in the libraries and, and archives. So there were a lot of things that he didn't have access to, but I'm so grateful for the things he did have access to, which we might not have been preserved if it wasn't for his involvement. And the memories he's preserved, of course, because he was there th- through the second half of her life and, and be, well, more than the second half, but yeah, from when he was born. And they had an intense relationship and a difficult, bumpy relationship. I mean, he was an only child, so she had an enormous investment in him. And also they didn't share the same political views and that caused a lot of tension between them. And I think that in some way, you know, given that he ended his life by suicide and we'll come back to suicide, sadly, throughout this conversation, I think that he may have felt that Catherine overshadowed him and in many ways ruined some parts of his life, certainly professionally, given her reputation. Just going to the title of the book, The Red Witch, which is very strong and very provocative, you mentioned Dorothy Hewitt's obituary Am I right in thinking that the Red Witch is a term that Dorothy Hewitt coined to describe KSP? Actually, she borrowed it. So there's ambiguity around the the title. It, it the first appearance, as far as I can see, was in an 80th birthday profile for Catherine, written by her good friend, the communist journalist Joan Williams, who wrote under the name Justina Williams, and. She actually later on explained that in the 1930s, when she was young, her grandmother took her for a drive up Greenmount Hill and pointed out to the cottage and said a red witch lives there. And her mother was into tarot and sort of witchy things. So what did her grandmother mean by it? I'm I'm not sure. By the time Joan used it in its 80th birthday profile, it had Cold War connotations, yet it, it also has other connotations and there's early poems where I'm including one reproduced on the, on the back cover where Catherine writes, lo, I am a witch and I, I cast a spell on you, which is just something she was playing around with in her poetry more than anything. But if you read her autobiography, there is this, she does sort of, it sums up her perhaps interactions with men. She's very, in, got this sense of beguiling men in various ways is, is a theme right through her autobiography. So it's meant to be multifaceted, but there is that strong sense of the figure we meet at the end of her life as a sort of quite isolated woman treated with suspicion by a Cold War Australia where where communists are on the outer. And it was used by Joan Williams in that profile, then picked up by Dinfina Cusack in another speech for Catherine's 80th birthday. And then I think what cemented it is that Dorothy Hewitt article, which is not the one that Rick Frossel was so offended by. It's, an, it's one for her centenary in 1983. And it was called Happy Birthday, Brave Red Witch. And it is sort of the f- nice uh, making peace with Catherine's ghost, I guess, for Dorothy, where she comes back to appreciate Catherine a bit more once the anger's gone out of Dorothy's own exit from the Communist Party, I think. Yes, she's had time for reflection and Mm. possibly time to mellow. Okay, without further ado, give us not the elevator pitch, but, you know, if you were kind of giving us the Wikipedia entry biography 
of KSP. Tell us who she was and why you think she matters. She matters because she's a major Australian novelist. She wrote some, wrote three great novels, I would say, which were Working Bullocks, Coonadoo and Haxby Circus. Amongst, she wrote 13 novels in all, and almost all of them have a, a lot to say for them. But she is a novelist that described Australian life and work in new ways. She gave Australia a new sense of itself in the sort of post-Federation period and into the interwar period. And she she described Australia with a sort of authenticity that that still reads really well today. It's building on the sort of Henry Lawson tradition, but it takes it out a a new realist direction, really engaging books that stand up well. And then beyond that, she's just a cultural figure who matters. In Tracing Her Life, you can see the phases of Australia through its its early time as a, as a nation, as, as a political entity. She was born at the end of the Victorian period, um, came of age at Federation. Her own thinking shifted from the religion, the, the, the Anglicanism of her parents and to reacting against that with, with sort of the liberalism of Deakin, who she personally knew, Alfred Deakin, the second Prime Minister of Australia. She w- became proud of Australia in a time when Australia was socially progressive and only to be radicalised by World War One and follow the Communist Party through all its ups and downs while Ultimately, her, her loyalty was to the Soviet Union as the founder of communism in the first communist state. And she decided in 1917 that it was the hope for the world. And after that, she never gave up on that idea. So in her, we get so much of a sense of the hopes and dreams of a nation and of the world through the 20th century. And in the individual circumstances of her life, we get a very personal picture of someone who lived through so much tragedy and yeah I, it's it's not like you can draw simple lessons but in in reading in reading her story you will get a sense of a remarkable person who lived through remarkable times in really strong and fascinating ways absolutely and who was never afraid of conflict so the conflict, whether it was, you know, the First World War or the Second World War or the Russian Revolution, I mean, she's kind of bearing witness and she's thinking deeply about these events and the impact on her life and the lives of the people around her. Now, men are very important in this story. And the first man who's obviously very important in her story is her father, who was the editor of the Fiji Times. And indeed, Catherine was born in Fiji. And he was also a conservative. So do you think, Nathan, that growing up in Fiji gave KSP, a kind of sympathy for Indigenous cultures and Indigenous races because she had had the opportunity to experience them firsthand, albeit in a colonial framework? It's a good question. And certainly she felt like that. She was only three when she left. She writes in her autobiography of the protective presence of a man named Nagado, who was her Indigenous nurse. And there's a photo, I, I almost wouldn't believe the story, except there is a photo of this uh, man who apparently, according to her, when she was only days old, began looking after her and took her to meet his, the rest of his kin and uh, 
had her speaking the language and, and all these sorts of things. And, and she claims he died out of grief when she left. I'm, I'm less convinced by that because I did find a, a mention in the newspaper of a nurse accompanying the family on the trip back to Melbourne that she's talking about. I, I think it's possible that it did. She doesn't engage at all with Indigenous people in her early work. There's, a, there's some passing mentions in her earliest work. It isn't until the 1920s to her 1926 trip to Tari Station uh, in Western Australia's Pilbara that we see real engagement. And out of that came some of her most important work, including Coonadu, some short stories like The Kubu and Happiness and Brumby Innes, the play. Maybe that awakened something that had been planted back in that colonial engagement as a little kid, but it was certainly dormant. And what about the fact that her father was such a conservative? Do you think that her later political belief, her convictions were in any way a reaction to her father, given that she does actually meet an important influential socialist in the form of Guido? Is it Baracci or Baraki? I'm not quite sure how to say it. I think Baraki, but um, I wouldn't Baraki. say it. <laughs> So, so I mean, Guido is obviously the kind of key figure in her sort of political awakening. But do you think there was, even retrospectively, a kind of rebellion against her father's values and beliefs? Hmm, it's hard. I wonder if it's only because her father died when he did, taking his own life in 1907 when she was 23, that she was able to go so far left. When he when he was quite sick with depression in, I think it was 1906, it was the federal election, the first time she was able to vote. And she didn't tell him that she voted for the Australian Labor Party because she was scared of the effect it would have on him. So she shows such care for her father and, and what he thought and felt. I There's no record of her ever engaging politically with her father, even though she'd started to move a long way, way away from his ideas, she didn't come home and argue with him. So I wonder if she would have been a very closet communist if he was still alive or a communist at all. Wow, that's so fascinating. What about her literary development? Because she enjoyed quite a lot of success quite early. She won an important competition with the big prize, which gave her prestige and prominence. Her earliest fiction, I think, was published in New Idea, which sounds kind of ludicrous to us today. Tell us a little bit about the beginnings of her, of her literary talent and its development. Yes, so she was writing from a young age. Her dad was a writer as well, and he actually published a novel called Retaliation, and it's a romance, and uh, it reads quite well for, for its genre. I, I, I thought it was quite a page-turner in one sense. And so she actually started out in that genre as well, and you can see, despite the fact that she was reading more challenging and literary stuff, a steady diet of romance is part of her literary formation. And... One of the key early publications, as you mentioned in New Idea, was A City Girl in Central Australia. And the New Idea had just published Miles Franklin and had published Mary Gilmore, I think, I think were the two that were in the years preceding her. And it's a really lively story based on her time on an outback station in New South Wales. And it weaves together 
we're used to get some tr truth with some very outlandish stuff uh, as this romance with a fellow called Billy Northwest becomes more and more melodramatic, I guess would be the word. <laughs> um, it shows a lot of promise and, and a talent for evoking the landscape and the people. And these are the sort of things that carry on through her literary development. But it was another 10 years before the big breakthrough, um, the, the Pioneers, which she wrote at the beginning of World War, or just, just before World War One, actually, when she was a journalist in London, she'd earned enough to take three months off for the Hodder and Stoughton 1,000 pound novel competition. And she did exactly as her goal was. She sat down, wrote this novel based on her time in Gippsland as a governess, and it was the Australasian prize winner in the competition and made her a bit of a celebrity. It was hard one. She'd been writing for a long time by then and she turned 30. She was in her early 30s by the time it came out. But from there, she, she had sort of established herself as a writer and, and built on that foundation. And also she had developed a methodology, hadn't she, which did owe something to journalism and again to the heritage of her father as a, as a journalist and editor in that she was very good at the sort of foraging of reportage, of going and listening to people's stories and finding out and asking lots of questions and being in situ. So she wrote about places where she had immersed herself in a particular way of life. Now, when she went to these very masculine, remote, rural workstations, properties, obviously she knew how to ride. Was she, was she something of a tomboy? Was she a feminine presence? How was she accepted? Why did people tell her stories? It's a really good question, actually. And you're right, like she was really into horses, so she she learnt to ride and, and could fit in that way. I think she was she was both a tomboy and a feminine presence. It, it would be probably best to think of her as, as having both those sides because she yeah, she played with both of those. She wanted to ride with the ride with the men and hear their stories, and maybe that's why they were willing to talk to her because of that uh, sh showing her stuff that, you know, she is willing to get her hands dirty and, and listen to them. I imagine she would have been a good listener, uh, just keen to hear their stories and, and get their stories from them. Um, and then some of the stories she tells re reveal she was sort of flirtatious still. And, and there's one, uh, there's, a, there's a dance at the Outback Station in New South Wales where you know, she has brought along some special dress for the occasion and is does a Spanish dance that her father had forbidden her to do. <laughs> and um, she's very much taken with a fellow she calls Redbeard, whose real name yes. is Alfred Quinn, um, who, who's actually the brother of the um, children's writer Torella Quinn, who was also on that station, which was called Torella. So, yeah, both, I'd say. And I think she would have been the sort of person people wanted to talk to, vivacious and yet also a good listener and someone who got to the nub of people's personality and, and what they had to tell. Now, we know quite a lot about the important men in her life. As one, though, who is sort of mysterious and romantic and who you describe using this French term of pre-chevalier. Who is this figure and what part does he play in Catherine's life 
before she marries. And are you the first person to identify definitively or at least to speculate it and speculate in a pretty authoritative way as to his identity or had other people worked out who that man was? So I believe I'm the first to identify him. I didn't find anyone else even having a guess really in the archives. Congratulations. <laughs> I, I was told by one of my PhD examiners that they knew someone who had a different theory that they hadn't published yet. So I, I await to see who that would be. I, I'm, you know, 99.9% sure I've, I've identified him correctly. Catherine writes about him in her autobiography without identifying him. Mm. I thought it was really, really important to talk about him because she gives so much time to him in the autobiography without identifying him. And having identified him as the uh, Colonel William Thomas Ray, the editor of The Herald, it, it, it makes a lot of things make more sense in her life. I, I think it actually reveals a lot about that formative period because Ray was a keen member of the Australian Natives Association, which was this sort of nationalist group that encouraged Australians to be proud of being Australian. And it only allowed people that had been born in Australia and probably excluding Indigenous people, certainly they weren't moving mm -hmm. in those circles, so white um, Australian-born people, to have, have these clubs with which uh, had particular chapters and promoted Australian culture. I think they were responsible for Australia having an Australia Day. And this shows through in her work of this period, this thorough Australianness, which carried through even as she moved away from some aspects of that and became politically radical. He was also a, a politician, an independent, sort of in the deacon mould, who sat in state parliament. And he gave her a job. He gave her her start in journalism, really, because after he inserts himself in her life and starts following her around obsessively, she takes a trip to London where his newspaper accepts various commissions from her. He meets her in Paris. Ray, the, the historical figure, I tracked to Paris at the same time on a trip for his health without his wife. And... When she returns, he gives her a job as the editor of the woman's page. And it's a job that she would have well deserved and she did brilliantly in it. Yet the connection there does explain how she suddenly got a very plum job that was very well paid. I, I think that this relationship might have had something to do with that. And his influence can be clearly seen in this period. Yeah. And he lasts as an influence in her life for a good decade. And obviously, any misgivings she might have had about mm. him being married, she manages to comfortably set aside. Why does she give him this name? Or why does he describe mm. himself as a preux chevalier? Mm. And perhaps explain what that term is, because it's not one that's commonly used. Yes, I think it's old French, uh, at least part of it. Mm. And, and I translates as gallant knight, um, to my best understanding. It was a bit sort of a ludicrous name to give himself. It may or may not have been a, an intimate um, sexual relationship. I think it probably was because... Yes, you do. You do. I mean, reading between the lines, mm. you don't say it explicitly, mm. but you do suggest that mm. they were lovers. Yes. And I, I mean, I'm not 100% on that. 
I, my main evidence for that is that she wrote a poem called Lips of My Love, which is very sensual. Uh, while she- it is. It's pretty damn sexy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and he's the man that she's involved with at this time. She is does say how she was staying away from other men because he had threatened to kill himself if she married or became involved with another man. So, it, yeah, maybe uh, may, or maybe not. But she sort of stays under his influence until she manages to break free after the success of the pioneers. And probably Guido Baracci was a real influence there in in breaking free. They fall in love on the boat back to Australia. He gets on board at at, uh, Sri Lanka where where she's been visiting her sister. And he's a socialist womanizer and... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> uh, women seem to have found, found him rather irresistible. He, he must have been very charming and he knew a lot and he was a poet, a bad poet, but a poet nonetheless. And he comes to visit her while she's staying by the tea trees in Black Rock in Melbourne. And that's actually a spot where she used to frequent with Ray, if it was Ray. And she has a torrid love affair with him for the next couple of years. Mm where he breaks her heart many times, but it's probably made her feel independent of Ray. But it also means that by the time she she marries, we are really to deduce that she is sexually experienced. She marries quite late. I think mm. she's 35, isn't she, when she marries? So given the kind of charisma of the two figures that you've just described... And the fact that these relationships you're suggesting do, it gets a bit messy there. And there could be quite a few of these things all going on at the same time. Who does she marry and why? Mm. So after Guido at 2am one morning suddenly marries a woman that no one is even aware he's involved with, a a pantomime chorister. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) He comes over to the cottage at Emerald where Catherine's good friends, Nettie and Vance Palmer are staying and which is not too far away. He's walked there, I think, while she's gone back to a star in the choir and announces that he's married. And their first question is, to whom? <laughs> I wondered if they thought it was to Catherine, possibly, but it wasn't to Catherine. It was to, I think her name was Kathleen Tobin, Toby. When Catherine, hear, Catherine comes to visit the next day, just Mrs. Guido, she hears the news and has a bit of a, uh, uh, a breakdown. Meanwhile, she's been corresponding with a war hero named Hugo Frossel, Victoria Cross winner and his correspondence grows more insistent he's already come to visit her once on leave back to melbourne and it seems that he he's now lost his brother uh, in the war and she's also lost her brother and they sort of bond over this um they write to each other really passionate letters that we don't have but i wish we did and hugo basically seems to say i'm coming back to marry you and he he does they have a six-week courtship really in Melbourne and her resistance breaks down finally apparently on Armistice Day 11th of November 1918 and they declare they can get married now because the war's over he's not going to get sent back to the front and they get married in January 1919 just as the Spanish flu hits Melbourne on the very day that it was announced that uh, the city was going into quarantine. And such is his love for her, Nathan. I mean, I'm I'm just surmising this here, that he adopts her politics and he comes out, doesn't he, as a socialist in public, which was quite a 
brave and radical mm. thing to do. So could you just talk a little bit about the politics of their relationship mm. and where she was at politically in her evolution when she married? Mm. And this is a point at which I break with previous biographers that have done work. There's a biographer of Hugo Frossel and, and also Rick Frossel's work on Catherine. I have a different emphasis on this political journey that they take. Initially, Hugo embraces communism and he does some reading with her. He wasn't much of a reader, though, despite what Catherine tries to claim. He, books aren't his <laughs> thing. and She tries to read from Marx's Capital on their honeymoon. I'm, I'm sure he tried to listen as best as he could. Oh, God. <laughs> He's quite, he, he does want to make this work. I mean, I, I, the analogy, I think he saw it as like converting to a woman's religion in order to marry her. And, you know, he'll go along and do his bit and, and um, claim allegiance to that. But it, it was a big move for him. His father had actually been a conservative premier briefly in Western Australia uh, and a long-term politician, a sort of baron of, of Northern in the wheat belt, a merchant who'd worked his way up from nothing to riches. And he famously, infamously, on in July 1919, there was a peace day celebration where the, the treaties of Versailles is finally being signed. There's a big procession through Northam and it culminates in this sort of rally where Hugo's the star speaker along with some ministers of religion and the local politician. And he announces that the war has turned him into a socialist. According to, uh, it, it, there was a reaction of some sort to that. I, I wonder how strong it was. I, I think that it, it wasn't so strong that he was immediately ostracised, as some claim, because he didn't lose his job on the land board. He got this plum job on the land settlement board, allocating land to returned soldiers. And he kept that job. It was a well-paid job, government job. And he kept that right up uh, until the 1930s when the scheme wasn't going well and it was reduced to a, a, a lower amount of work. And then finally, the RSL said they didn't want him on the job anymore. Now that's been blamed on his socialism, but that seems strange when there's all those intervening years in which Hugo actually becomes politically disengaged. After the initial two years of attending a lot of political rallies and Catherine making some speeches, Hugo makes at least one more speech and writes a, col writes a newspaper an article that isn't published except eventually in, in a socialist newspaper. After that, Catherine's health breaks down, the Communist Party's not taking off in Western Australia, and she gives birth to their only child, Rick. From then, in 1922, they really become quite politically disengaged through the 1920s. They've got busy life. Hugo's trying to make money in various ways. He's got really into property. He owns about, he's got mortgages on about 30 properties, I think it is. And Catherine's writing all of her best work. She hasn't got as much time for politics. It's not until the Great Depression that she re-engages with politics. And if you read Intimate Strangers, which has definite autobiographical overtones, it's almost a novel about how she hopes that Hugo will be following her into politics. So in, I think it was May 1933, Catherine heads off on a trip initially to London, but secretly she's trying to get to the Soviet Union for a tour to see it for herself. And while she's away, Hugo tries to make goods on all his debts and hatches a, a crazy scheme to put on this huge rodeo attraction with all these different things going on to bring people out to the hills in Greenmount and try to sell off his blocks. 
It costs a fortune. He, he doesn't get the necessary permissions. He feels persecuted and others have written that he, you know, it was because of his socialist beliefs that the authorities cracked down on him. Yet what I found was that he was actually given special permission to be allowed to take up money to cover his costs running this on a Sunday when that was forbidden by the law. But his connections meant that he wasn't, didn't just have to abide by the law. He was allowed to cover his costs. It still wasn't enough to get him out of his hole. He's got deeper into a hole. He tells Catherine to stay on in Russia as long as she can. Go back via America and meet your publisher there. There's no hurry to come home. We're going fine here. But of course, he's not going fine. And just before she's ready to begin the trip back from London, he takes his own life. Meanwhile, she's in the Soviet Union, and that is a life-defining experience for her. So she meets with a lot of Soviet writers, and she creates meaningful, lifelong bonds with writers, deep friendships that are going to abide for the rest of her life, really. Do you think, Nathan, that she was politically naive? Do you think she was an idealist? There's no doubt about it, <laughs> both of those things. She felt that if she went to the Soviet Union and saw it for herself, there would be no way that anyone could deny what she had to say about the Soviet Union, that communism was working so well. And there were various things which were going well that she could point to. There's, you know, a flourishing art scene. There were people, there was universal childcare. There were women being allowed into the workforce. There were various things happening which she could point to and say, this is great. But her, her naivety and her idealism meant that she interpreted things through a lens where she wanted them to be seen to be working. And indeed, I mean, it's very clear when she describes a purge trial in the book that came out of it, The Real Russia, and, and describes it approvingly. She feels like it's safeguarding the Communist Party from shirkers and, and greedy people who aren't doing their bit. And she feels that it can maintain discipline and make sure that the Soviet Union flourishes. This is just before the year before th those purges go beyond expulsion from the party into actual executions, but it was it was soon to get there. So she was incredibly naive. She saw what she wanted to see and then held on to that for the rest of her life because she wasn't going to believe capitalist journalists who were telling her something different from what she'd seen with her own eyes. Her flourishing in in Russian actually occurs after the after World War Two in so particularly the 1950s and 60s the Union of Soviet writers begins to arrange for a whole lot of translations it's sometimes slow in coming she and the information never gets back to her very reliably I mean one of her books goes into translation and she gets some estimate of how many books it sold and no royalties and then another year she gets this huge check I don't know if the it was unreliable. Maybe someone was having a good year in the in the Union of Soviet writers or something, and they they send her this huge amount of Moscow gold. So she does become very popular. She becomes a celebrity in the Soviet Union in her later years, and at the end of her life in the nineteen sixties, she's things have opened up a bit, and there's Soviet tourists making a pilgrimage out to her house in. Um, the hills of Greenmount, and she loved it. That was, I think that was one of her favourite things in her last years was to receive the Soviet visitors and 
they would present her with gifts and she would present them with gifts and get photos and autograph whatever they've brought. And uh, she even comments in one letter that my doctor thinks I'm about to die. And then every time there's a visit from the Ruskies, I, I revive and I'm good for another year. What was ASIO doing about her? What did ASIO make of all this activity, both in terms of her trip to the Soviet Union and then Russians coming to visit her at home later? The answer to what they make of her Soviet trip is hidden. And it has been uh, censored from her file. And I, uh, Rick Russell applied for this to be released, I don't know, 30, 40 years ago, and it was denied. I've applied for it to be released and I uh, haven't heard anything back four years later. You're kidding me. You're kidding this me. This is what happens when the National Archives is starved of funding. And it's ridiculous because it's 1933. I, the reason is that that report is from the British Security Agency and it's in the ASIO file. And so it's a third party. A lot of her files have been released, but there's various bits which have been hidden from view, which would shed a lot of new light on her activities and, and what they were doing. ASIO took a strong interest in her. It was one of the key people in ASIO was Ron Richards, who had come over from Perth. He was nicknamed the Black Snake, and he had personal animosity toward Catherine Susanna, and he had been infiltrating himself, drinking with Mountjoy, Bill Mountjoy, the communist leader in Perth, reassuring him that they weren't going to take any action against the Communist Party in Perth in the 1930s, while building up all sorts of information on them and then staging a whole lot of arrests. Catherine was one of the few key people who didn't get arrested because she would have been made a martyr, I think. Hmm. So... ASIO took an ongoing interest in her. They, a lot of the files are reports people have made. They've got various people who aren't identified who are taking information on her, reporting on what meetings she's been to, what she's been doing, what's been happening at her house sometimes, these sorts of things. How well did she combine her ideology with her storytelling gifts? Did she manage entirely to avoid didacticism? No, she didn't avoid all the traps. <laughs> she Certainly, uh, I mean, we see it most clearly in the Goldfields trilogy. This was written, well, published between 1946 and 1950. It, I mean, it's, a, it's an interesting part of her work because there's some great achievements in it. And it is an ambitious saga that tells the story of the Goldfields in Western Australia from its development in the 1890s through to the big town that had sprung up by the 1950s and it's an important work but over the course of the three books certainly the ideology becomes more intrusive and it probably becomes harder for the general reader to enjoy I guess the the mix is probably right in the first volume and 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 becomes a bit imbalanced by the second and third according to my reading others have come up with a different answer and and felt it maintains its appeal and the the sense of the, the workers and their struggles are, are told well. And there are there are achievements in, in all three of those books. But it was an ongoing struggle for her. You can see it right back in Working Bullocks, in, published in 1926, which is a fascinating story of the timber workers of southern forests of Western Australia. But then we get this communist character, Mark Smith, suddenly turn up. I think at about the two thirds mark. And he's an interesting figure. It is really a intriguing part of the book, but it doesn't 
fit very neatly with the rest of the book and it feels a little bit unresolved. It actually relates to an incident that happened after taking all her notes. There was another timber strike and she went down to take notes on it, I think in, in 1924 it was. So it's sort of come out of that and an attempt to bring some politics into it and it's intriguing but it's not entirely successful perhaps. I have to say, Nathan, that there is no way that anybody would publish a book today called Working Bullocks. To me, that title has to be one of the most unappealing titles of any novel I've ever ever heard of. Why was it called Working Bullocks? Why couldn't she come up with something more lyrical or mm. more imaginative? It just sounds the... so <laughs> pedestrian. Even in the Russian translation was titled The Brumby Hunter, which would have been more enticing. Fine. <laughs> and... Recently, uh, there's a website called The Worst of Perth and Working Bullocks was featured on it as the, the um, <laughs> convener of the website had spotted it in a secondhand bookshop and felt it worthy of the site. And at the time, it wasn't well received for its title. Either. A brave title, one review said, bound to put off nine-tenths of women who are the main readers of novels. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> but, uh, yes, uh, it meant something to her. She, she was really taken with this idea. She uses it in a previous novel, this image that uh, the workers are, are like the bullocks that are being driven to do the, the, the hard work. And I think she was really quite, felt this was really insightful into the condition of the working man. So she just had to use it. <laughs> The book that most readers of her work seem to choose as the standout, the favourite, and I guess the legacy book, is Kunadu. So could you tell us a little bit about that? Because that's the one which, again, it would be impossible for her to write that today because of mm. the way we've evolved the discourse around race and Indigenous uh, agency mm. over Indigenous culture but it was an attempt to do something really radical for the time, wasn't it? And, and I think it was an important step forward for the first time Aboriginal, well, one of the first times Aboriginal people that are characters, we, we might criticise it now that they're not fully well-rounded, but it was an attempt. And I think it, it is a rich book lyrically. It, it is a beautiful description of life up north. It tells the story of a white station owner whose obsessive love with Kunadu, the, the Aboriginal woman, ends in tragedy it, he can't really confess to his own feelings or, or or front up for his own feelings and it and it brings tragedy on everyone it also is a portrait of sexual exploitation of aboriginal women particularly on the on another character who has a different mode of interaction with aboriginal people and has sort of concubines or a harem type arrangement and she was trying very much to critique that exploitation and it was controversial for that reason at its time because people denied that this was happening and that felt that the novel was libelous on the people of the North. So for that reason, there were a lot of angry letters to the Bulletin when it was first serialised in the Bulletin as a winner of another competition. Now we have some important Indigenous scholars making some responses to this novel and talking about the damage it's caused being taught as an Aboriginal novel to generations of school children and university students. And that's probably a critique that Catherine would have agreed with. She made the, the point herself in the 1950s in an interview that if she was writing Kunadu today, she would have written it differently to try to show Aboriginal agency. So 
I am glad that Catherine saw, was making an evolution herself in her engagement with Aboriginal people. Coonadoo actually mm-hmm. becomes at the beginning of that. And if you get to the Goldfields trilogy toward the end of her career, the whole trilogy begins with the violent dispossession on, of the land from the Aboriginal people and the sort of crimes committed against, in this case, a particular Aboriginal woman whose daughter will be a recurring character through the trilogy. So it feels like Catherine has developed in her depiction over those years. It's unusual these days to find a male biographer tackling a female subject. Nathan Hobby exhibits sensitivity in his task, given a life that was at times quite messy without tiptoeing around the difficult bits, like her stubbornly uncritical position on Stalin. But honestly, how frustrating not to be able to get hold of her full ASIO files so many years on. And a bit of an update on a story we featured in a previous episode. You may have listened to me talking to British biographer Andrew Lowney about his protracted legal struggle to access some diaries in the Mountbatten archive. I'm sorry to say that he has now abandoned that dogged pursuit as it was becoming too expensive to sustain the court case, despite donations from an enthusiastic public. Future biographers may have more luck. Thank you for listening to Life Sentences. The show is produced on Darawal Country by David Roach at Two Heads Media and Pipe Wolf Media. Music is composed and performed by Amanda Brown.